This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 317 of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, and for this one, I'm continuing my uh, summer of Western road trips, except this time I hopped in the car and drove south from Colorado, ended up here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and joining me uh, for this episode is Avery Swanson. Welcome to the podcast, Avery. Thanks, Jamie. I'm very excited to be here. Well, you know, it's we've talked about doing this episode of the podcast for years now. Yeah, it's and been a long time. <laughs> it's been a little while. Uh, you know, the time has just never quite been right. We've never been in the right same place at the right same time. And, uh, you know, here I was. Um, I love Santa Fe. I was so excited when I heard you all were moving here. Um, it's such a beautiful place. I spend a lot of time down here. I've got my cousin who lives here. My parents are my, my wife actually worked out here in Santa Fe at the Santa Fe Opera for a summer. Really? The first summer after college. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So she uh, she was a theater major and came out here and was a in summer intern working for the opera. How cool. Yeah, we have not done the opera yet, but I know it's a really big thing here. It's kind of like the Red Rocks of the opera world, right? Like an outdoor. Oh, it is. Huge yeah. outdoor amphitheater. And you can just like see all of the beautiful mountains and like the monsoon clouds and everything in the summer months and yeah, it looks super cool. I know everybody gets like dressed to the nines in their tuxedos and goes out there in tailgates. So one day. I, I have been to the opera. I, I've, I went the, I, the summer that she was out here. It, it was the summer after we started dating, 1997. Wow. And uh, yeah, so she was out here that summer and I, I came and visited her once and then came out and we drove back from Santa Fe to Florida and, wow. mo- and moved in together. And that was uh, that was it. And there we, here we are. Anyway, I'm back in Santa Fe now. I, uh, I've had some, we've done some cool stories over the years here in Santa Fe. A uh, number of years ago, I came down, uh, Kyle Yonan, who was a brewer at Blue Corn, at the time, um, you know, would uh, we foraged for Neo Mexicanas hops? Amazing. And we, uh, drove up into the hills above Tasuki and uh, Abiquiu uh, and harvested uh, wild growing Neo Mexicanas hops that he would make a beer out of. And wrote a story about it for Craft Beer and Brewing. Go to beerandbrewing.com. You can read that story. It is pretty cool. It's kind of amazing what's, what's just up here in the hills here around Santa Fe. Yeah, I mean, we do a fair amount. My husband and I do a fair amount of hiking out here at this point. Um, now that we've been here for a little while and kind of have familiarized ourselves with the place, um, I really enjoy mushroom hunting. Not, I don't necessarily eat all the mushrooms that we find, but it's a really great pastime. Um, and I know there is tons of stuff to be foraged for beer making, so I'm very much excited to be here and to have a brewery soon so that I can forage for some ingredients. Soon. Yes. Soon. Hopefully. We, we'll, we'll see. We can talk about that later on in the podcast. Um, I would be lying to you if I said I have not looked at uh, Zillow to check out homes in Santa Fe. And I think that uh, at some point in the future that uh, my wife and I may. may Excellent. Once, once the kids are out of the house. Which totally. We're four years until the last one's out yeah. of high school. So It'll we're be getting here before closer there. Yeah. Uh, we may we may find ourselves down here in Santa Excellent. Fe. The mix of art and culture is just unparalleled. It's a really magical and very special place. I think New Mexico as a whole is just, you know, they call it the land of enchantment. And it really is. It's a very rugged, but very beautiful and very, uh, you know, if you can if you can handle it as far as like the elements, because sometimes they are intense, you will be paid handsomely for 
in just like natural beauty for being here. So fantastic art, fantastic yeah. culture, fantastic food, um, and people, and great people. Yep. And then, uh, you know, and some great beer that's going to be even more great beer. Yeah. As soon as you all open something, you know, I mean, honestly, I feel like New Mexico as a whole, the breweries here really kind of over index in awards like at GABF and stuff like there really are not very many breweries here in Santa Fe. I want to say there's maybe eight or 10 at this point, um, a hundred in the entire state. And they take home serious hardware every year at GABF and World Beer Cup. So um, people here know what they're doing. They care a lot about beer. And I feel very grateful to be a part of this community now. Well, it's fantastic. I'm so excited to, to talk to you about the way that you brew. Um, you've got a long and illustrious history here yeah, that spans multiple states, Texas, Chicago, Illinois, now soon to be Santa Fe. And so uh, your itinerant mixed culture uh, your brewing journey continues in all of these different locales. Uh, and it'll be interesting to talk to you about how you have uh, found ways to make locally expressive beers using a similar framework in all of these different environments, uh, you know, what that looks for you. We are definitely going to talk about brewing those mixed culture beers because that is, uh, those are what you do so beautifully. Before we do that for years, Gene D Chillers has chilled the beers you love partnering with 3000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built offering 24 seven service and support. Gene D builds with non-proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. GD's in-house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over 30 years. They offer free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG. Want a natural and economical clarification aid that doesn't impact beer flavor? Then you need Carry Biofine Eco. Developed as part of Carrie's Eco Brewing Range, Biofine Eco is a plant-based finding agent that improves beer clarification by instant flocculation of yeast and trube. Available exclusively from BSG. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. If you want me to flub words, put flocculation yeah. <laughs> in the script and I will absolutely flub it. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> uh, and scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes to get started head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Avery, let's talk about your story. Where does it start? Where's your beer story start? And uh, walk us through the various chapters um, that you have lived so far. Oh, man. <clears throat> Excuse me. It does feel like a very long time ago at this point. Perhaps not as long as it is for some, but I guess for me, I I don't know even really where I would say it started. I I very much enjoyed craft beer before I ever got into it as a hobby, you know, for homebrewing or professionally as a actual beer brewer. Um, growing up in Houston, I definitely, and you know, once I was old enough to drink, of course, uh, enjoyed, sure. my, yeah, sure. <laughs> enjoyed my fair share. <laughs> um, my first craft beer experiences were definitely, uh, well, I guess the beer that really kind of made it for me, made craft beer a thing was Alyssa IPA from St. Arnold Brewing mm. in Houston. Um, I feel like I've probably told this story before, but uh, it's named after a ship that is, it might, it may or may not still be there actually, um, but a ship in the Galveston, 
like Port of Galveston, Galveston Harbor, whatever. Um, it's an old wooden ship. And when I was a kid in Girl Scouts, I remember going for to get like a badge and we spent the night on the Alyssa a couple times and I learned how to like tie knots and how to have like, you know, do night shift or whatever. But at any rate, that beer, I remember very much being like, oh, I, I you know, I spent the <laughs> night on that ship. <laughs> um, but it was like kind of more of an English IPA style thing. It was quite bitter. I remember having it on cask at a few different bars in Houston. It was, you know, a beautiful beer. And I fell in love with IPA at that point in time. I very much was a, a, a hophead to start. Um, I moved to Austin in 2011 with my partner at the time, and I had bought him a homebrew kit for Christmas one year prior to moving to Austin, and he never used it. Um, and so when we moved, I was like, I'm not going to pack all this stuff up if unless we like promise that we're going to use it when we get there. By the time we got there, I still had like all the grain and everything. The grain had like you know, worms and stuff. And it was yeah, disgusting. Yeah. So we did buy fresh ingredients, but started out home brewing in like 2011 and just totally fell in love with it. Um, was home brewing like at least once a week when I first moved there. I was applying to grad school and stuff. So I had some time. Um, ended up not getting into the program that I really wanted and was just like devastated and also kind of relieved. Um, and ended up my, by then this was like 20, you know, late summer, 2012, my dad had passed away and I was kind of like reevaluating my life, you know, like 24 years old or whatever. And, uh, quarter life, quarter yeah, life quarter life crisis. crisis. Yeah. Um, and I went and got like my motorcycle license and like, you know, it very much was kind of quarter life crisis situation. Um, but sent out emails to just about every brewery in Austin at the time there were not that many, um, asking for volunteer opportunities. Cause like, well, let's see what this is about. Um, and Jester King was the first brewery that got back to me, the only brewery that got back to me really for a long time. Um, and February 28th, 2013, I went out there from a first bottling day. They were bottling black metal. We started at like two 30 in the afternoon and didn't get finished with that 30 barrel batch until two 30 in the morning, at which point we ate like cold pizza off of ripped up cardboard boxes <laughs> as plates. And I was just like totally in love. You know, as the, a volunteer, as a volunteer, Ugh. you know, with the process and the people and the experience and everything, I was just totally obsessed with it. Um, and so I anytime they sent out an email looking for volunteers, I was there, you know, ready and rearing to go. Um, I moved rocks around that property. I painted the tap room, the tap room bathroom. Um, but yeah, so that was early 2013. I was a volunteer for about six months, um, asked for a full time apprenticeship after six months. And they they gave me that. Um so I was there full time, not getting paid a whole lot during that period of time, but learning so much. Um, and so I did the apprenticeship for six months and they hired me on full time as a brewer after that. Um, and I was at Jester King until begin, like very end of 2018. Um, I put in my, my notice at that point in time. But by then I had been production manager, head brewer. I had been awarded some equity in the company as well. Um, that I continued to to hold. So I am still one of the several owners of, of that brewery. I'm very grateful for my time there. I learned so much from so many people. Um, it was a really incredibly formative time for me. Um, I quit for more personal reasons. I was pretty burnt out at the time. I'd been traveling a ton, doing all of the production management and brewing and not all of the brewing. We had several brewers as well, but I was super burnt out and needed some personal time. Um, 
my mom was sick as well. So I was like, you know what? I just need to take some time, be with my family. Um, and looking back, I'm really glad I did because she ended up passing away a few months after that. So, mm. um, but at that point I moved to Chicago, um, gave myself a bit of a sabbatical break. And in spring of 2019, I started doing a little bit of work for Half Acre. Um, they have a, or used to have a really incredible wild program that was headed up by Lee McComb, um, who I consider very much to be my beer brother. Learned a ton from him um, and was kind of helping them with some ideas for scaling that program and things like that. That ended up not coming to fruition post-pandemic and everything, but um, I had a great time there. And eventually they were like, you know, we've got extra tank space. If you would like to make some of your beer here, you know, I think that would work. So that was when Keeping Together got started. I brewed the first beer in July of 2019, released that beer in December of 2019, a table beer called The Art of Holding Space, and uh, and then managed to keep that project, that brewing concept afloat throughout three years of pandemic. <laughs> uh, thankfully, the amazing people of Chicago are quite thirsty and enjoy mixed culture fermentation. So... Uh, I was able to make a bunch of different beers there before deciding to move about a year ago here to Santa Fe. Yeah, and you you kept it small through that. It yeah. wasn't as if this needed to be a you know a full time giant revenue driving project yeah, that totally. you needed to maximize out. So it was you know make a beer, do a release, get a few more beers going, so that you can kind of keep a cycle yeah. of things coming out. Yeah, over the course of the three years that I was there, um, I was maybe closer to two years actually producing beer. Uh, I did maybe 24 releases, 22 different beers. I did the table beer a few times because obviously we have to keep that in stock. Um, and that, that table beer, I think, was one of Yvonne de Betts's, uh, it pick was six beers. Yeah, no big the, deal. In craft beer and brewing. <laughs> I, I saw know. that and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me, <laughs> Yvonne. <laughs> yeah, I love him also. Um, we all do. Yes. Yeah. How can you not? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So basically a beer a month. Yeah, more yeah. or less. Uh, but, you know, total volume was less than right around 200 barrels total. Mm -hmm. And I basically did everything myself, um, you know, from sourcing ingredients to brewing to fermentation management, packaging, which I did with a little bit of help from a couple of other people. Um, i very fortunate to have a good artist who helps me with the labels and things like that. Her name is Jessica. She's in Austin at this point. And then thankfully I didn't have to do much in the way of compliance because Half Acre was doing right, that, right. Um, which very grateful for all of that. But it was a really amazing experience and kind of afforded me the opportunity to figure out what it is I wanted to make, um, what my personal kind of beer making philosophy was. Being at Jester King for so long, you know, I kind of, I, there was a little bit more of a group kind of collective understanding of what the beers were for good reason. There was a, you know, it was a huge company. Um, not necessarily a huge company, but there were many people that had ideas about what Saison was sure, and we all came sure. together to make something beautiful. Um, and of course, even Jester King's, you know, scope for beers that they make has drastically changed over yep. the last three or four years, you oh, know, yeah. and, uh, you know, they are making more and more hoppy beers and trying to respond to where, you know, consumers are totally. and, uh, what people want from them also. Yeah, you know, I haven't tried very many of the new monoculture beers, um, but I've heard good things, mm -hmm. and I know they're canning a ton, and um, I'm happy to see that they're kind of exploring some of these new things that, while I was there, I was still kind of afraid to explore, like canning. Uh, canning will continue to be kind of an enigma magic 
to me. So sure, sure. And so, what is? Uh, I mean, I guess we could probably put this at the end of the podcast. But I, I'm curious now that we're talking about it in this kind of arc, what you know, as keeping together as a brand now evolves into this next phase, and the next phase will be what a brewery and a tap room here in Santa Fe. Yes. What uh, how, What do you envision that looking like? I mean, I assume it won't be all mixed culture beer. No. It'll probably be a, a, a component of it. Yeah. I mean, I would say, and I might answer this question initially with a little bit more of like a philosophical kind of uh, what I wanted this brand to be when I first started it, um, but wasn't able to really execute because of the kind of cultural moment um, with the pandemic specifically. Like I, I wanted the the project to be a very experiential um, concept, very, you know, build in kind of space between the lines for people to fill in as they enjoy the beers. Um, I wanted there to be a lot more sharing and kind of communication between myself and consumers about what the beers were eliciting for them as far as flavor experiences and, and memories and things like that. And because we weren't able to do in-person events for so long, by the time we were able to do those, honestly, some of the wind had been kind of taken out of my sails. And I was just like, you know, trying to get this thing off the ground and everybody, many people are still, you know, we're all still kind of reeling from this experience, this cultural experience. Right, right. Um, and so it kind of at that point felt like, okay, I'm going to have to wait and ride this out a little bit and maybe we can revisit that in the future. Um, so now here in Santa Fe... I am just so thrilled to be able to build a tap room, a physical on-premise experience for people to uh, experience the beers and to kind of just engage in fellowship and, and you know, community around the beers. Um, obviously, 10,000 breweries have been doing this for a very long time, um, so it's not necessarily any sort of new idea by any means, but I am excited to finally be able to kind of shape that experience alongside the beers here in Santa Fe. Um, and there's a particular, you know, creative class here in Santa Fe that is absolutely tuned in to that wavelength and values that kind of experiential approach and uh, an experimental, you know, approach loves the risk taking, obviously, you know, um, the galleries in Santa Fe are one portion of that meow wolf and uh, this kind of, you know, more kinetic art, you know, piece coming out of Santa Fe, another big piece of that. I mean, there is this heavy creative undercurrent here that loves that kind of, you know, s slightly off angle approach to, to creating an experience that may be unexpected, but also enveloping. Yeah. That's actually a really great way of putting all of that. Well done. <laughs> um, I feel very much the same way about Santa Fe and I, you know, to consider Santa Fe's background, it very much has been a crossroads for so many people coming through the West. Um, all of the people that have been here for so long, just so many different influxes of, of cultures and people and obviously not all of it positive, but I think for so many places that experience that kind of, I'm going to use the word like tension um, with so many people trying to live in one place and kind of, you know, make it their own. Like at some point that tension has to break. And in so many ways it breaks as like creative energy. 
Um, and so I very much feel that here. And I think, I think there are absolute parallels between the craft beer industry as a whole, where so many of us have come from different backgrounds, looking for respite, looking for some sort of creative outlet, looking for freedom from whatever it was that was, you know, keeping you bound prior to getting into beer. I think about so many of the lawyers and, you know, people that worked in cubicles and whatever that were like, screw this. Engineers. Exactly. Engineers. Screw this. I'm going to go start a brewery because I can't do this anymore. Um, And then I would say too, like on a more micro level, Cezanne very much has that kind of spirit of resistance and spirit of resilience to it as well. And I, I think that it will do well here in Santa Fe. It's a broad canvas that Mm -hmm. can, uh, that you can paint in, in so many ways. And that's a fantastic segue to start talking about some of the ways um, that you build those canvases and and then uh, apply pigments to them. Uh, Before we talk about that, take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. AccuBrew's mobile app and stainless steel sensor work together to send you live data from inside your tanks, including predicted gravity. Fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. Unlike other fermentation monitoring systems, AccuBrew is CIP ready and designed to stay out of your way, saving you time and space. Their set it and forget it solution streamlines systems and processes, helps maintain consistency and detects problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Also, ProBrew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And elevate your brewing game with RMS Roller Grinder. Their industry-leading mills deliver optimal grind consistency, unlocking the full potential of your grain. Say goodbye to uneven grinds and hello to exceptional flavor extraction. Brewpub or production facility, RMS has the expertise and grain handling equipment to meet your needs. Visit rmsroller-grinder.com to discover how RMS can transform your brewing experience. Unleash the full potential of your grains with RMS Roller Grinder, the trusted choice of brewers worldwide. All right, Avery, let's talk about Saison, Saison farmhouse, ale, however you want to define this mixed culture. Um, where does it start for you? You know, obviously you got your roots in it because that was a big portion of what Jester King brewed, but you know, as you then set out with keeping together to brew your version of that, um, where did you start and how did you start constructing beers? You know, where does, what, what's the first part of that creative process? What do you tap into? You know, is this something driven by an idea of flavor? Is this, uh, you know, something where there's a specific, uh, you know, a profile or, a, 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 you know, flavor concept that you're trying to brew to? Is this something where you get inspired by things that you taste or ingredients that you, uh, uh, you know, taste or rub that, uh, you know, that push you off into some of these ideas? What is, let's, you know, since we're in this creative place here in Santa Fe, talk to me about your creative process and the foundation of this. Oh man, it's a loaded question. Uh, There's so many, can talk so about many, this. Exactly. <laughs> can talk so about this for a long time. 
Um, I don't know. I guess I would start with saying that for me, Saison is very much um, kind of the like pinnacle beer style. It's, uh, you know, I feel like so many people are familiar with the romantic notion of what Saison is historically being this like, you know, the, the beverage to sustain farm workers and, you know, very in like bucolic places. And, you know, it has this very textural story. Um, but, and I, I don't disagree with much of that. I think the story is a bit more complicated than that. And Cezanne is of course agricultural, but it's also industrial. Um, it's a traditional beer style, but it still has so many blue collar roots given totally. how we art it up these days. I mean, it's, it really is a blank canvas and you can interpret it in so many different ways and take it in so many directions. Um, I think that it inherently has that kind of flexibility, even the, you know, BJCP or the BA and their style guidelines honor that it is, you know, the parameters are quite broad compared to most other styles or many other styles. Um, so for me, Saison very much has this kind of like tabula rasa, like it can be whatever you want it to be kind of thing. And I know we already talked about Yvonne, but I know he would probably look at me a little bit like, mm, <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> um, but, of course he would, because yes. that's, he would do, do that yes. no matter what. But he, you know, he would agree with more of it than he disagrees. Sure. <laughs> I think I'm not speaking for him. I just, I just know. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so for me, I don't know. Saison philosophically, it's a really fun style to brew. It is a fantastic style to drink. Um, it is the beer that I generally want to drink and want to brew. So that is more or less why I have gravitated towards it. Um, I think a lot of brewers in the United States, you know, there are plenty of people that make it clean. Um, uh, you can think about like tank seven that has been a, a longstanding beer. Do they even still make that beer? Oh yeah. Okay, good. Um, you know, but like, I think it, it like single handedly holds up like one Nielsen, uh, <laughs> yeah. or Circana, you know, category in yeah. all of the retail. Uh, Incredible. You know, I mean, bless it, it. Yeah. It is the beer. It's like, Oh, that cat, that's, yep. yeah, that's thing seven. Yep. And I mean, at this point, when I think of Saison, I don't necessarily think of that beer, but it paved the road for so many of us, you know, younger Saison brewers in the United States. Sure. Sure. Um, and that beer has a very specific flavor profile. It's a little intense for my general tastes personally, but I'm grateful that it exists. And I think that it's um, for a lot of people that are maybe just getting into craft beer, just getting into Saison, it's a great starting point. Same with like Saison DuPont, obviously old world, but uh, and has a very distinctive flavor profile the same way that Tank 7 does. But is, you know, Saison can be that, but it can also be mixed culture, tart, uh, you know, it can be the beers that Jester King used to make. It can be the beers that I make. It can be the saisons that are made in so many other breweries around the country. So I don't know. I just appreciate that it can be all of these things at once. Um, when it, it has a very wide range without getting a whole bunch of sub de uh, designations. Yep. You know, if you applied the same number of variations to different expressions of Saison as we did to say IPA, um, we would have just a myriad of additional ones, but Saison slash farmhouse ale seems to just be this one catch all term that catches a lot of different beers mm -hmm. versus American strong pale ale, New Zealand IPA, Double West juicy. coast IPA, yeah. you know, Rocky mountain IPA, like, I, you know, 
it's interesting to see just how we slice and dice in other ways and, and we don't in Saison. So should we? I don't know. Maybe we should. I mean, you know, there, IPA there, has gotten... There is a significant, you know, in terms of flavor and the way that people perceive and drink, something significantly different from the acid-focused mm-hmm. saisons and farmhouse sales, uh, mixed culture-based versus those, um, you know, that are simply using single yeast strains. And I mean, in a lot of ways, they could, they're different beers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of two minds about it myself. I label every single one of my beers, or at least did when I was making beer in Chicago, as Saison. But I've talked to good friends that are also Saison brewers that are like, well, this isn't Saison. And I'm sure you can imagine how those conversations go. Because <laughs> for the most part, I'm like, well, of course it's not. Like, it depends on your definition and it depends on Define the, the is. rule stick. Define exactly. Is. Exactly. You know, it exists. It It, it is Saison, you know. It's, I don't know, I can, I've, I haven't been drinking enough to really get into this <laughs> deeply in a way that I think would be as Damn entertaining it. as it could oh. be. Yeah. So well, maybe sort of pause the recording, drink a few more <laughs> beers and then we'll get back into it. Yeah. Again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that it could yeah. be all of, we could give it a bunch of different names. And I think that, uh, you know, the name itself, it, like IPA is just such a simple name and concept. And yeah, it has kind of emerged into so many different substyles and the average like the average consumer has heard of IPA you know the average consumer has probably not heard of saison so is IPA more popular Imagine american consumer at least yes yeah. right naturally um you know if saison was being thrown around all the time if we were just giving it different adjective descriptors before we said saison would people become, would it become more familiar to people? And if it became more familiar, would it have the same kind of trajectory that IPA has had over the last five years? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So you just need to make Saison IPA and then... Uh, Juicy Saison? Yeah. Or cold, Hazy Saison? Cold Saison. Yeah. You know, Brute Saison? Yeah, yeah. You know, all I make those, all of those at once <laughs> and I just call it Saison. <laughs> uh <laughs> Well, let's, yes, let's, um, let's, you, again, uh, you know, I, know, I, th- I, I, I think, no, I, think, I think the conceptual you know discussion is interesting and certainly, you know, maybe it makes sense to have some more language or yeah. maybe it's okay that the style is all encompassing like that because that pushes us beyond these kinds of overly simplistic and reductive terms for, for creating consumer awareness and understanding. And it forces you as a brewer to engage in some sort of communicative way at a, in a, you know, at a deeper level to really help people understand what those beers are outside. I mean, you know, because beer styles are just marketing. It's a very, it's a quick shorthand that helps people, helps consumers understand, Oh, I'm looking at a beer menu. I need to choose a beer quickly. Like IPA. I know what that's supposed to taste like. And I can make that, you know, Saison Mm kind of, I don't know if I really understand that, but, uh, um, it's definitely more esoteric. Right, but you know, it pushes now. It pushes you to have to use more language, totally, to help people understand what this is and to help them connect with the beer. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I've had a number of conversations with colleagues as well about the term farmhouse ale and kind of using that. And I know that it is used pretty interchangeably with saison at this point, and I don't disagree with that. But I do think that for the average consumer to say farm like what does farmhouse ale mean like it has a fairly esoteric 
or perhaps not esoteric, but like experiential connotation to it as well. Like when you think of farmhouse, what do you think? I think for me, I generally expect it to have some sort of texture or rusticity to it. I want it to have, uh, you know, it might have a little bit of funk, but it doesn't have to. It might have a little bit of acidity, but it doesn't have to. Um, I don't know. I feel the same way about Cezanne. But Cezanne, like I said earlier, has that more kind of esoteric term that people don't fully understand. And I think a lot of people aren't willing or are not as eager to get into that vulnerable place of, well, what is that? What does that taste like? So I don't know. I There's guess probably something when I think about farmhouse that, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word term barnyard because I think that's a dumb and overused term. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think there is some sort of like grassy or hay or, you know, grain, uh, some sort of component there that feels agricultural. Right. That, that, you know, and there, there's probably a, you know, a toothiness to it that, that probably that feeds into it so that it feels substantial and not necessarily as, uh, you know, as purely refined. Um, you know, and those are things that I'd want to seek out if I heard, you know, hear the word farmhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, that's something that I was thinking about just within the last couple of days, you know, since I can't make any beer, I'm over here reading about reading craft beer and brewing articles about Saison, actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> um, and there are some really great articles on the website about Saison. Um, and we're just kind of thinking about rusticity and what it what it has meant to me as a beer maker throughout my career. And, you know, in, in Texas at, at JK, we were I feel like a, a fair amount of the kind of rustic elements of that beer were coming primarily from the water, honestly. I mean, of course, we were using craft malt as often as we could, had good relationships there and access to to good craft malt. Um, but we used plenty of mass-produced malt, and there's nothing wrong with that by you know at all. But when you're looking to create an experience of rusticity, you know, you need to start with your raw materials. And I think that the water profile that we had there was the perfect starting place for that. The perfect, imperfect starting totally, place. Totally. For that. Like I remember when I first got started there, we were at the tail end of like a, a very long-term drought in, in the hill country. And, you know, we were working on really sophisticated equipment and had to boil all of our water before we transferred it to the hot liquor tank. <laughs> so not sophisticated at all. Um, but we were literally we would fill our 60 barrel kettle full of well water and we would boil it for an hour in order to try to precipitate out some of the alkalinity and that like hardness um, before transferring it to the jacketed hot liquor tank so that it would stay warm <laughs> for the next day when we came in at 5 30 or 6 or whatever to brew um and i remember when i first got started there the water was so hard uh i would do that and there would just be a pile of like sludge chalk in the bottom of the kettle um and i'd go to open the dump yeah. valve on the kettle to get rid of it and clean it out and it would just be like a puff of white smoke from the chalk it was so so yes imperfectly perfect um for the profile that we wanted for the beers um but i remember when i first got started in chicago the water there is completely different you know it's like great lakes pure um Lake Michigan pure water 
And I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? I've never had to deal with water chemistry before. I understand it in theory. But How do like, I junk this up honestly, and make it more farmhouse Where is yeah. the calcium sulfate? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I eventually managed to kind of get it around where I wanted it to be. But it wasn't an element that I was relying on at that point to create that textural or that like rustic element in the beers. Uh, but in Chicago, I had a... Uh, I was very lucky to get to work with Caleb over at Sugar Creek Malt mm-hmm. in Indiana, who is just absolutely brilliant. And he and his sweet family are producing some of the best craft malt that I've been able to use in the United States. Um, not only is it just like from a quality perspective, fantastic, but he's doing such cool, cool things with the with the grain. Like I, one of the I think it was the fourth beer that I released under Keeping Together. It's called I Am Because We Are, and it is a lavender smoked barley saison. And like, what does that, what does that even mean? You know, like he, they brought in some samples and I tasted this lavender smoked barley and I was like, what the hell is this? This is crazy. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, like, I don't know very many other brewers or craft maltsters that are doing anything like that. So I made a beer with, it was, it ended up being like 85% smoked malt because he was like, the smallest I can sell you is 330 pounds. And I was like, all right, well, I can't use this in two separate beers. Uh, so I'm going to yeah. use all of it. Um, and thankfully, it was cold smoked. And so the smoke character was really quite subdued compared to, like, I would never sure. make an 85% uh, like Vireman smoked barley. You make 100% Schlecker you know? smoked beer. Come on. I mean, don't get me. Look. Can be done. I have been trying to make smoked beer than the new IPA <laughs> since way before John Hall. Okay. And quote me on that. I know Camp Rauch, Rauch beer and everything, but I've been trying to make smoke beer a thing for ages. And I'm glad that it is now. Um, but there's a lot of really cool things you can do with smoked malt and smoked beer. Anyway, I digress again. But uh, I've been trying to think about like how I can kind of bring that element of rusticity to the beers here in Santa Fe. I think, I mean, the water here is extremely hard. Um, but, you know, the water I was using at Jester King was from a well. There wasn't any chlorine or chloramine added to it. Um, where we're locating the brewery now, I don't have that same luxury. I, can't, I don't have a well. It'll be city water. So I'm going to need to figure something else out with that. Which, but it's still hard here, even though, I mean, most of Santa Fe water is probably surface reservoir water, right? A lot of it is, but I mean, the, you know, we're out a little bit south of town right now. Oh, okay. And the water here is extremely hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got an RO filter under the tap for drinking water here because you can take, you know, the water tastes sure, salty. Sure. Um, so pretty high mineral content, highly alkaline water here. Um, so still working on what my plan is for the water. Um, there's not really any craft maltsters out here. There's like, I've heard of one, one, I think it's a more of a family business as well. Group of people that are trying to start a craft malts, craft malt business here. Um, they were growing the barley here, I believe, and sending it to Wyoming to be malted. And now mm. they're building a facility. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I know there's a bit in Arizona and Texas and Colorado. Right up here in the Alamosa Valley, not that far. If you just drive straight up from Santa Fe, you'll find uh, you'll find some maltsters. Uh, I believe Proximity, that. Proximity, yeah, Colorado I've... Malting Company are all up there. And uh, yeah, and barley, barley fields too. And honestly... Like this is something I thought about so much when I was still in Texas. Like we were using Texas malt or Texas, you know, grown barley that was grown farther away, you know, than what you're suggesting sure, now. Sure. So just because it comes from the same state doesn't mean it's local by any means. So that that point is not lost on me. Um, 
but just follow the Rio Grande River up yeah. there a little bit, you know. I mean, and I know that it's extremely, you know, and a lot of the craft yeah. malt that I was getting in Texas was being grown in Colorado and just malted in Texas. So, um, you know, looking at, at the malt and how, you know, what direction I want to go with that. Um, but otherwise, there's plenty of like Neo Mexicanus hops are from New Mexico. You know, they grow wild sure, here. Sure. Um, there's plenty of other really cool ingredients that I would love to play around with. Um, when I do start making beer here again, well, let's, let's flip around again and talk about how you then build up that recipe. You know, uh, like one of, you know, uh, say your table beer, for example, you know, where you start and thinking about the malt and then how, and maybe we'll walk through how you build that recipe first. Oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers. Good thing. Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops and wait there's more omega makes yeast to order with a consistent one week lead time ensuring peak freshness and reliability also keep your brewery running smoothly with five-star chemicals their cleaning solutions are specifically formulated to meet the unique needs of breweries ensuring that your equipment stays clean and free of harmful bacteria and contaminants. From cleaning fermenters to kegs, they have a solution for every step of the brewing process. Use five-star chemicals today and taste the difference in your brews. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you. Whether you're just starting out or looking to expand, contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. So yeah, how do you start thinking about a uh, you know a malt base for for these saisons that you're going to make? Um, so, and obviously there's some change here, you know, yeah. you, you like to experiment, but uh, you know, as you're thinking about kind of a, a normal baseline, where do you start? I generally, um, I want texture in my beers, uh, but I also want my beers to be dry. So, and I know that my yeast will generally ferment to complete dryness. Um, so oftentimes when I'm building a grain bill, I'm looking at how I can create that textural experience. So I use a ton of oats. Honestly, that's probably one of my, like, there will always be oats in just about every single one of When you say a ton, like, how, what is a ton in terms of broad percentages or percentage um, range? Honestly, like, it's not uncommon for me to sit around the, like, 8 to 10% range. Okay. Um, let's say 8, 8%. Kind of just depends on the beer. Um, and then from there, I don't know, I'm a pretty simple, like, and, and I'm that, a simple that, girl when it comes to malt. Just, they're just building... Body, body texture, Without a little bit of silkiness. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and honestly, I like the flavor of oats. Um, so, you know, golden naked oats, flaked oats, whatever. Um, I'll generally throw a fair amount of that in. Um, in the past, making beer in other places, like at JK and at uh, Half Acre, I was a little bit more like, well, we have this stuff available, so I'm going to throw that in and kind of build the recipe around what I've got sitting around. My more type A personality is like, I've got one bag of this and I don't have anything to use it for. I need to get it out of here. Um, so I will build a recipe around this one bag of grain. 
Um, one of the beers that I made, it was maybe the third beer I released under Keeping Together, was based on the fact that Half Acre had like one bag of Maris Otter in inventory. And I was like, I talked to the production manager and I was like, what do you, do you have plans for that? Like, this has got to be driving you crazy too, because there's just this one bag, <laughs> you know? And he was like, please, if you would like to use that, I am all for you using that bag of grain. Um, and I ended up building a recipe all around it. Um, you know, Maris Otter, British beer. I ended up making a beer with like Earl Grey tea and oranges and saffron. Um, and that was all just because that one bag of grain was available. So I don't know, I'm a little, you know, and I can also go kind of kitchen sink with it where it's like, oh, you guys have all of these like half empty bags of or half full bags of grain. I'm going to go ahead and use this stuff because I'm tired of looking at it. Uh, and you know, it's just going to go bad in inventory cause it's just like random amounts of grain. Um, so looking to the future and being able to kind of, <sighs> have a little bit more control intention, over some intention. exactly um, not, not that there's not intention there of course you know, not. There's, there's a particular creative challenge to say hey these are my constraints these are the things i want to work within how can i make something interesting interesting through that totally and honestly i think i do better on in that kind of scenario than just like the world is your oyster you can make whatever you want what are you going to make it's like i need i need fewer options than that because Otherwise, I will sit here forever and just like paralyzed by choice. Sure, um, sure. So I do kind of thrive. That's why I'm attracted. In that. To, I, I'm a, also a graphic designer, art director, yeah. creative director, and you know that uh, that act of design means you're working with fixed points. Totally. Like, you, know, you have other content and that you need to convey through this in some way or another, and those are your those are your constraints. Yeah. You, know, you find a way to work through those. I love that. You know, there were a couple times with my artist Jessica where I'd be like you know, for this label, I'm just going to give you three words and just take it and run with it. Whereas for yeah. some of the labels, it's like, I have a very specific idea for what I want this to look like. Um, I like to think she enjoyed both ways of working together, sure, but sure. I would imagine that like we were just talking about having just like a couple parameters to work within. I don't know. It really, there's like an inherent sense of energy about that, that I think is really great from a creative perspective. Um, but yeah, otherwise I'm pretty simple. I like raw grain. I like raw wheat. I like, I really like spelt, um, hmm, Pilsner. Why? I don't know. It has like a little bit more, it's a little bit more characterful than wheat. Um, from a flavor perspective, it just has like more of kind of a doughy flour, like delicate flour, um, kind of flavor profile that I really enjoy. And then it, I think texturally in the finished product offers a little bit more of like a pillowy kind of softness that I really enjoy. I like rye too, but honestly my malt bills are all over the map. Uh, <laughs> so sure. You know, do you, you know, try to employ mash techniques, you know, knowing that you've got a mixed culture that's got botanomyces in it. It's going to over time work through all of this. You know, you don't necessarily need to, take some of the same mash strategy that, uh, you know, uh, Boulevard might use with tank seven yeah. to try to achieve that similar dryness out of a, you know, a single, you know, uh, yeast strain fermentation, you know, how does that express then through the, some of the techniques you use to mash? To be totally honest. And I feel like a lot of, uh, mixed culture brewers out there are going to hate me for saying this, but I'm not like Britannomyces is not my favorite, organism for fermenting okay i know hot take it's okay. um, i mean truly it's it's I, i've just had so many 
wild beers that taste like or smell like urinal cake (laughs) or like this weird it's not a pleasant funky it's not a barnyard funky it's not it is very much like it is very off-putting to me personally um and so and i feel like it is very much like a a a brett c kind of flavor contributor that i just or flavor component that i really just not a huge fan of so for the most part i build my beers to if they're going to build brett character it will happen over time as like a a function of the age and the maturation of the beer but not necessarily something i'm looking for early on um at this point so you want to drive quicker fermentability within these so that you know your yeasts are going to do the heavy lifting yeah your sack yeasts are going to do the heavy lifting before the brett has a lot to to funkify yeah and at this point if you if any of the listeners out there have any of the keeping together bottles, depending on which beer it is, there might be a fair amount of Brett character in there. Um, the lactobacillus that I primarily use in the culture is, eh, it's not as hop tolerant as like the lacto that I used to work with at Jester King. So for some of the beers that are dry hopped, um, instead of developing acidity over time, they've definitely developed more Brett character over time. Mm. Um, I don't think that will continue to be the case forever going forward as I use this culture more regularly, you know, and over time. It gets um, hardier and hardier. Yeah. And honestly, I prefer for my bacteria to be a little bit uh, less hop or rather more hop tolerant. Right. Like, you know, I want there to still be a little bit of acidity, but I want to be able to use hops as a flavor contributor without the lacto being like, oh, God, what's happening? Yeah. Um, so I would say for, as far as like mash temps and things like that, um, I'll, t- I'll ferment or I'll mash pretty high, um, single infusion mash though. Yeah. You're not going through yeah. step mash and you're not decocting in order no, to, I would love to be able to decoct <laughs> things. And honestly, in, in, uh, putting together the order for the brew house for the spot here in Santa Fe, I definitely was talking to the, my brewery engineer at North coast, uh, metal fabricators and was like, I would love to be able to, you know, have a three vessel situation so that I could do decoctions and things like that. And he was all for it. And then I was like, I really shouldn't be getting a third vessel yet. That doesn't make any sense. So sadly, I won't be doing any of that. But, um, you know, modern malt offers you the complexity to some extent, blah, blah, blah. Um, But yeah, for the most part, single infusion, fairly high mash temp. Hmm. Like, you know, the yeast can handle it. It's... (sighs) Like the Brett's going to do its thing, whether you give it a ton of sugar or not. Um, so I would rather there be a little bit higher dextrins and a little bit fuller body in the beginning. So that when you drink it fresh, it's got texture and it's got body. And then if the Brett, you know, wants to chew on it later, that's fine. You should drink beer fresh. It's my opinion. <laughs> that makes, <laughs> uh, you know, hey, hot. Uh, you should drink it fresh. Yes. And you should save a bottle to drink later and see how it I do develops. agree with that, but it really shouldn't, you shouldn't be keeping it for that long. Like I cannot tell you how many bottles. Says the woman behind keeping together. Yes, yes. I know. I know. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't actually realize that there was a, an issue with the name yeah. now that you mentioned that and my, my philosophy behind, uh, storing beers for a long period of time yet another thing you'll have to explain to people yeah yeah i'll start working on that narrative now (laughs) (laughs) so so um let's go back and talk more about that culture because i think it's interesting how did you know 
coming out of other cultures and working with them. Um, you know, that Jester King culture is, is, you know, built over years and years and years mm-hmm. using wild caught stuff. And, uh, you know, of course developed its own character over that time. Um, as you were building a culture for keeping together doing this now in Chicago, you know, how, and having some ideas about how you wanted that culture to work. How did you set about building that kind of mixed culture for your beers? So before I left JK, I was working on a project with a another brewery in Austin called Blue Owl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd sent the culture in to Escarpment Labs up in Ontario, yep. which is the only place I buy my yeast at this point. Um, because I, I basically sent the culture in to have the lactobacillus isolated so that we could make a kettle sour beer at Blue Owl right. um, using our lacto. And that project ended up... N- ended up not coming to fruition the head brewer there and i actually ended up both leaving kind of around the same time so sadly that project didn't happen um but the culture that i sent up to richard at escarpment was still alive and well and when i started kt i was like you know i called him and was like you definitely isolated the saccharomyces out of that culture right i know i didn't ask you to but you did right he was like yeah (laughs) i did like okay, like I would very much like to start to basically create the culture around that Saccharomyces. It had been, like you said, we had been dealing with that culture for a really long time. It had been evolving for years at that point. Like Garrett, the head brewer before me, built that culture very much. Yeah, Garrett Crowell, very much the shepherd um, of of that yeast culture. Um, I cannot tell you how much I learned from him when it comes to yeast. Um, and his wife, Adrian, they were both incredibly influential for me creatively and technically as a beer maker. Um, but I, you know, I, I talked to Richard and I was like, I would really like to start the culture with that sack. Um, and he was all for it. So I basically had him prop up a pitch of that for the first beer that I did with KT. Did any work on what the root of that Saccharomyces? It's definitely diastatic, but honestly, mm. um, I'm not... I'm not sure how much they were able to do as far as like DNA kind of isolation on it. What's it close to? Where did yeah? Where did it come from? Um, Is it wild, wild, or did it come from probably dregs of something somewhere? Yeah, honestly, I don't think that it was wild, wild. I mean, there had been times over the years before I left JK when you know Garrett was still there, and the culture would start kind of acting a little funny, and we might add a small amount of DuPont yeast or a small amount of Tyrier Saison yeast mm-hmm. or whatever. He, he, you know, as the yeast shepherd that he is, had his own cultures that he was kind of keeping sure, at home, sure. which is how you know that somebody really loves what they do. Because I haven't homebrewed once since I became a professional yeah. brewer, except for with you guys at the craft beer mm-hmm. retreat. Yep. Like, I, you know, I, but he would keep cultures at home, you know, and I'm sure he does still to this day. But uh, you know, so we would kind of recharge the culture periodically just, you know, to kind of keep it where we wanted it With to be. With more mostly Belgian style, yeah. Yeah. you know, sack strains. Yeah. Um, so at How any did rate, you know the culture was drifting off of what you wanted? Was it just not uh, fermenting as dry as you wanted? So just Or not even necessarily fermenting. Well, I suppose so. It would stall out at mm, times yeah. or it would start getting, it would start developing a ton of acidity really early on, which kind of indicated to us that the bacteria was out competing the yeast, yeah, yeah. which means that the yeast was just not as healthy as it could be. Um, and generally when things like this happened, it would have been like in the winter time 
it's been it's been so long. I have, it's been almost five years since I've been at Jester King, so I'm like reaching deep sure, deep sure, down here. Sure. Um, and obviously, I I'm not operational there anymore, so they could do things totally different now. Yeah. I'm sure they do. Um, but at the time, you know, it's like okay, well, it's winter time. The yeast is freaked out. It's shocked. You know. Right. We're not brewing tank beers as often as we were, or like stainless steel saisons as often as we were in the fall or the summer, because we've been focusing on cool ship stuff or barrel age stuff. And so the yeast would kind of just be like, bro, if you don't put me in coach, I'm going to just, you know, atrophy on the bench. Right, right. Um, so I think that that was primarily what would happen. It gets so lazy if you don't, honestly, if you don't put them through know, the workouts. Yeah, they used to be in the MVP. And then you're kind of like, look, it's not your time. We got to yeah, let some of these yeah. other, and yeah, so... But yeah, so that's the that's the base for the keeping together culture. Um, is this sacrimonious strain the that sack. kind of came out of that? Yeah, okay. like late 2018 JK sack. <laughs> um, and it's my favorite, my favorite. Totally, sack. Total, yeah. totally same. Such a great year for yeah, sacrimonious. It really was. Um, and yeah, so I started using that. Um, I think I may have gotten a small amount of the lactobacillus as well, but I used a very small amount in the very small amount of that in the culture and half acre is okay with you bringing diastaticus. Uh, I mean, at that point they were, you know, they have their, their huge production facility right, right. and this was the, the brew pub. And so, and I was only using a couple tanks that were being used for the wild program by the end of my time there. I definitely, you know, you should talk to hot butcher at this point and see how they're doing Yeah, because <laughs> they're in that space now. And I worry about it. Sometimes. I'm sure Jude is listening to this. Yeah. And he'll, uh, he'll, hey he'll Jude, let me know how it's call going. me. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope it's okay. Um, but you know, for the longest time I was just using the wild stuff anyway. And, and, uh, I, they know how to autoclave stuff exactly. there. You know? Come on. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have robust enough cleaning procedures, yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point, I've sent some of that same sack out to a couple collaborations that I've done. And it's been really cool to kind of see what that culture does in a clean beer setting without any bacteria or bread or whatever. Um, and, and what does it do on its own without those? I mean, honestly, it still it still tastes like the yeast that I know and love. Mm. Um, for me, the the Saccharomyces has a very distinctive kind of like very citrusy and kind of like green strawberry, wild strawberry like flavor profile. Um, but it kind of depends like the beer I made uh, with it with fast fashion up in Seattle is a kind of a Belgian pale ale. And uh, I thought that the yeast did really well with that. It was fairly phenolic, but we wanted it to be, um, I don't know. I look forward to the future and being able to kind of play around a little bit more with what clean fermentations with that yeast might look like. So then you, so you start with Richard building out this culture that, uh, that he's going to then blend for you. Where'd you, you know, you anchor it with sack. Yeah. What, so what else did you do? From there, I kind of reached back to my homebrew roots and was building up cultures of my own at home from bottled regs and things like that, that mm -hmm. I really liked. Sure. I had found a bottle at a bottle shop in Oakland, um, of a beer from a Georgian winery, uh, the country of Georgia. Yeah. And I was like, oh, how cool. Um, and so I added in the beer, it wasn't like the so best beer ever. So much wine cred Oh, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, it's like the such cradle. A, such a hipster. Yes, I know. I mean, it's the, the that I bought it in Oakland at a bottle shop, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it was like the only bottle of beer in this wine shop and they, the person behind the counter was like, great. <laughs> whatever. Um, and then a few years back I had taken a trip down to Brazil for a, a beer competition that I was judging and, uh, made friends with 
a woman that works at a yeast lab there and she had sent me home with some some Brazilian Britannomyces and so I threw that in the culture you know at this point I could probably reach back out and ask her exactly what it was but at this point I, you know I put it in the Erlenmeyer flask and let it do its thing and for the first beer I basically just added the whole flask to the beer when I pitched and it's not the most scientific, so I'm sure many of your listeners are going to be like, what the hell? <laughs> I can't replicate that. And, you know, sometimes you kind of just have to feel it. And that's not the point. The point know. is to to understand the process so that yeah. uh, people can, you know, uh, tap into that same kind of process. So, you know, you, you brew a beer with it. And uh, then over the next two years, you continue to brew all of your beers with it. Yeah. So, I mean, at that, so I bought that first pitch, did that first fermentation. And honestly, I, totally screwed up and had to buy a second pitch for the second beer. Um, I waited too long in between the first and the second and didn't have a yeast brink and was kind of like, "Eh, I I really should have fermented that second beer more quickly. Um, but I was like very much still escarpment. Thanks you for that. Yes. I bought a second pitch (laughs) of the two total that I have bought at this point. Um, and at that point I basically just took dregs from bottles from the first batch and just chucked those into the second fermentation. Um, and that's been the culture since then. Um, and honestly, I feel really good about how it evolved over the couple of years that I was there. You know, it does its thing. And I feel like we got into a, a good rhythm as far as like timing and, things like that. I did buy a yeast spring. So I was able to kind of keep the culture. When you say a good rhythm, what does that mean? Um, you know, you, you, like we say, you want to keep it working. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise it gets a little, yeah. I mean, that is more or less what I mean. Like yeah. at the time I was like, I had one tank that I was able to use. And so it was like, and it didn't really, it was a, like a repurposed Grundy. And so it didn't have yeah. a cone. I couldn't really do a cone to cone pitch. So I had yeah. to like, I had to transfer off the yeast to another, tank temporarily when it was empty um that like the other brewer was using so that i could package and then at that point or so that i could crash and then i was able to harvest the yeast it was just from a like production organization perspective i was working within the parameters that i had and it was not ideal um and early on it was very much um what would yvonne say about your tank geometry there he probably would have been like if you may work fine you know it was definitely it's it's not the same as the tanks that he uses because they are dish bottom and ridiculous but um i don't know i like to think that the tanks that i'm going to get for the new spot he would approve of so fair enough fair enough so so you know over those two years you know did you did you have to adjust in any kind of way and how would you know how, how did you ever rebalance or no i didn't rebalance um I'm sure that had I continued making beer there for a bit longer, I'm sure I would have at some point. Um, but I think, like I said, we kind of, I got into a good rhythm using it. Um, and eventually like during the pandemic, when half acre stopped producing at the brew pub, I had access to many more tanks and sure. was just kind of like, okay. Um, so I had the flexibility there, but um you know, at this point, kind of starting over here in Santa Fe, I'm planning on doing kind of the exact same thing that I did as far as buying a pitch of the Saccharomyces and then uh, propping up some of the bottle dregs from some of my favorite bottles over the last few years and using that for the first the first pitch and seeing where it goes. So fingers crossed, I think 
it, it shouldn't go terribly awry. Sure. Hopefully. <laughs> sure. Knowing, knowing the, you know, kind of characteristics, the flavor characteristics that the culture has and has developed, you know, how much does that impact the way that you then think about downstream, you know, from the base beers that you make or, and, and maybe I should, we should back up on that. You know, as you, you know, you make beers that, like you say, use Maris Otter and Earl Grey tea, you find yourself using lots of ingredients to create interest in each one of these new batches that you're making for these beers. Um, how much of that impacts the you know upstream process of the finished beer or how much of that is driven then on the flip side, you tasting something, you know, tasting this beer that you're going to build something else from and then, you know, having that spur on a creative process. How does, I mean, there's multiple you know avenues up and down that you can work with that way. How does that tend to work for you? First of all, I want to mention that I feel very fortunate for kind of the mechanism by which I exist in the beer industry and uh, make beer because I have the flexibility to kind of go any of these various routes that you just described. Like I can start out with just an ingredient and that ingredient can kind of lead me down a path of inspiration to a final beer concept or I can have a final beer concept in mind and I can buy all the ingredients required to get there. I can do that successfully or I might I might do that, start that process. And then the yeast is like, actually, given this starting material, we're going to go this, com- you know, a completely different direction with this. And at that point, I'm not going to try to strong arm the beer into tasting the way I wanted it to because I had an expectation for what that thing was going to taste like. Um, during my time in Chicago, I made a beer called Preoccupied with Memory and Expectation. And I ended up naming it this because it went that way, where I had uh, I had made a beer years ago at Jester King with uh, Ben Love over at Gigantic. We'd spent some time together um, pouring beer at a festival in Japan. And so we wanted to do something that was kind of inspired by that trip. We made a beer... Um, I think it was called Serata, I believe. Uh, but we, the, the thing I remember about this beer is that we made it with Japanese red shiso leaf. And the beer ended up having this really incredible kind of like coconutty type flavor to it that I had always just attributed to the red shiso leaf. Um, because I, there was nothing else in that beer that would have, you know, theoretically led to that flavor profile. So it's like, okay, it's got to be this ingredient that I've never used before. Why not? Um, and so I set out to build a beer using red shiso leaf and, uh, burnt honey, kind of like Boucher for, for mead. Um, and I cannot, like this beer tasted so far from what I thought it was going to taste like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I was just so like, oh man, okay. I waited and this was like during the pandemic. So it took, you know, eight months for the shiso leaf to get to me after I had ordered it because it was stuck in customs and, you know, who knows how many different places. Um, I was pretty upset about it. And I was just like, man, okay, how else am I going to get this coconut flavor? Because that's very much what I was looking for in this, with this ingredient in this beer and side tangent, kind of one of my least favorite hops ever is Sabro. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it tastes like, I don't know, like popcorn that has like fallen out of your mouth already, like just gnarly, like weird, slimy, buttery, kind of coconutty weirdness. And I was like, 
the only way I'm going to get coconut flavor in this beer at this point is if I dry hop it with Sabro. So it's like a, this beer ended up being kind of this like more red in color, mixed culture fermentation beer, brewed with Japanese red shiso leaf, refermented with burnt honey, and then dry hopped with like 0.2 pounds per barrel of Sabro. (laughs) And I got a little bit of the coconut in it, but it is a weird beer. And I ended up naming it Preoccupied with Memory and Expectation because I was so preoccupied with my memory of this ingredient and the, the expectation of what it was going to taste like. And the the yeast and and for that matter, the raw materials were just like, nah, this not at all what we're going to end up tasting like. And, you know, you kind of make do with what you have and you either dump it because it's not what you wanted. Sure, sure. And I know a lot of big breweries that like you can't afford for your flagship beer to go a different direction and you just kind of roll with it, you know? So I recognize that not everybody has that luxury. And for that reason, I feel fortunate. But like at the end of the day, I just want to make good liquid. And and if the yeast wants to go a different direction, I am not here necessarily to stop it. I would much rather try to play off of it and make something cool instead. Sure, sure. You know, and as long as that is still interesting and compelling to you for maybe different reasons, and you've found a creative way to solve that problem, then, uh, you know. And I think it's within the brand. I think it is like a, a, an interesting challenge as a beer maker where you're like, okay, you know, assuming it's not like some really horrendous off flavor or, you know, like a true uh, microbial infection of sorts, which I have experienced in the past. Like as long as it's not really off putting, like, you know, let go of what you thought it was going to be and kind of roll with the punches and create something that is a bit more collaborative with the culture that you're using and create something cool. Um, As you think about that, I mean, obviously there are these different directions that you go, but where do you, when you think about finishing beers in these different kinds of ways, using these ingredients, where do you pull from and what is, is there a technical approach to evaluating some of these things, how some of these ingredients especially ingredients that are not necessarily common in beer, like red shiso leaf, um, you know, a process that you use to evaluate how these things are going to react before you say, make an entire batch of it. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, sometimes yes. And sometimes no, sometimes I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever, we're just going to, you know, seat of the pants here and go with it. Um, but other times I do bench trial type things where I might take a beer that's in tank that might be similar to a concept I'm thinking about. And I might, you know, add some of the ingredients here and there and see like, okay, well, sure, a little bench testing. Yeah, yeah. Like this does that, this does that, whatever. Um, and then hopefully I write it all down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I feel like I did less of that when I was just on my own than I ever did when I was with a group of people, which makes no sense. Cause I was like, yeah, I'll remember. And I don't remember, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like I don't... Those beers will never be repeated. Then. Yeah, yeah, probably not, which is fine. You know, they are ephemeral moments in time. But, um, and again, it's a kind of a weird challenge to try to recreate them anyway with no starting point. But I don't know. I would say that I probably rely more on just my palate and then kind of feedback from other people, which was challenging at times in Chicago because there was only like a couple people there that I could be like, you know, I, I would go and bug the the people in the shop and I'd be like, can you guys taste some of these beers with me? Because <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure. Like I taste this. I just want some feedback. 
and at Jester King, there was, you know, no shortage of that. There were tons of people that were constantly, you know, it tastes like this and that. And, you know, it was a really amazing environment. But when you're when it's just you and there's like two or three other people and, you know, bare bones, because exactly. It's pandemic. Right? Exactly. Right. Um, so I don't know. I staff working in squads in order to compartmentalize. Totally. So and and you're sick. like, I'm going to leave the, the cup there yeah. and, you know, I'll yeah. leave the room yeah. and you can come in the room and you know yeah but i would say that's about i don't know i didn't get too much more technical than that during that period of time and honestly for the most part i don't i don't foresee myself getting too much more technical with sure at least with these styles of beers they are very much kind of just weird i don't know esoteric kind of flavor experiments so. are there any ingredients that that you've stumbled upon or you know, engaged with that have just caught you off guard and how interesting they express in beer? Um, you know, I made a beer in Chicago um, with some spent fernet botanicals from a distillery there mm. uh, called Rhine Hall. And the, you know, fernet, I'm sure just about everybody listening to this is probably familiar with it, um, if if not too familiar with it. Um, and it was a really interesting blend of herbs um, and like bitter roots and things like that. It had some like star anise and some chamomile and a bunch of different um, roots. And I was like, okay, when I smelled it, it had this very like Chinese five spice kind of character going on for me, uh, cinnamony and whatever. And I was like, I want to add maple roasted carrots to this. So I did like a barrel age. It was very small, like two U S barrels Um a very very small blend with maple roasted carrots maple roasted carrots yes um which was great you know i roasted them all myself in the oven there alone <laughs> um and then added them to this crazy tank and then just steeped the fernet botanicals in there for like 30 minutes because it and it was like maybe five mm. five pounds total like very small amount for a very short period of time but it was like it ended up being an extremely intense flavor experience but the finished 30 beer, minutes. Yeah. Very wow. short steep. Um, but the finished beer ended up tasting like granola, like huh. tasted. Cr- and so it's just one of those weird things where like you smell it as an ingredient or a collection of ingredients in this case. And it has this one kind of sensory experience for you. But then when you combine it with something else and then you referment it and like whatever it, it was so completely different than what I expected it to be. I, like I was, my mind was blown by this particular beer. I really wish I had done a, a bigger bat. That is definitely one that I might try to recreate at some point in the future. Sure. Sure. Uh, we could, are, are there any ingredients that, I mean, I guess these are these stories of things not working out the way you expect them yeah. to, but giving you a different angle in, um, are there any other ingredients that you found particularly like a gap between what you thought you were going to get and what you did get? Oh, you know, I can't think of anything really specific off the top of my head. And what I can think of, I feel like is more a function of the amount that I use than it Mm. was the ingredient itself. I generally try to approach my beer making with a pretty soft touch. I don't necessarily, I think that there are plenty of really great beers out there that are very extreme in their flavor elements. And I don't necessarily feel like I need to do that. So though I use some weird adjunct ingredients and some perhaps kind of out there flavor combinations or ingredient combinations, 
it's not just for the sake of adding weird shit together. You know, I am looking for elements of each of those ingredients to combine to create something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, And that doesn't always mean that it's, you know, that the carrot's going to taste like carrot. Like, um, and so there definitely have been times where, you know, like lemongrass is one ingredient that comes to mind where I very much wanted to make this beer with like lemongrass and blueberries um, inspired by a wine that I had had. And because those were the like flavor, like sensory words that I came up with when I tasted this wine. And so I used lemongrass and it just like was nowhere near the lemongrass character that I wanted. And so I had to go a completely different direction with that beer. Um, but again, that's not the lemongrass's fault. It's because sure, I didn't use enough. Sure. It's because I, you know, was like, I don't want to sit there for three hours smashing lemongrass. Right. Right. So how do you how do you think about um the way that acidity expresses with these ingredients? You know, you mentioned that Brett Funk isn't necessarily your goal here and that you're trying to minimize that. Um, you know, and that you do try to corral the lactobacillus also. You know, but that acidity adds a certain brightness and, uh, you know, can definitely lift these, uh, some of these flavor notes and these ingredients that you're adding. How do you try to balance that? Do you, you know, do that differently for each beer or do you have some general ranges that you shoot for? That's a good question. Um, I would say that I generally approach acidity, um, as like an element of structure in beer. I think, a lot of times, um, you know, we kind of fall back on bitterness as the structural component for a beer experience. And though I think that that's all well and good, and I, I do that myself with a lot of my beers, I think acidity can offer a structural component and just like a kind of like a tactile, like wholly encompassing element to the sensory experience. Um, like you said, brightness comes to mind as a very much a descriptor of a type of quality for acidity. Um, But I would say that at this point, like you kind of develop a relationship with the culture and you know that it's going to produce this type of acidity, this quantity of acidity, and you can kind of, you know, adjust your IBUs or the temperature at which you're fermenting in order to kind of keep it within that range that you want it to be. Um, and so that's kind of how I approach acidity. I want it to be there. I don't necessarily want it to be extreme by any means. Like I, I I don't even really consider myself to be a sour beer maker at this point in time. Mm -hmm. I obviously have done plenty of that. Um, I like making beer that is balanced and acidity is one of those flavor elements that needs to be in balance with everything else in the beer. Is there a general kind of either a titratable acidity goal or a pH goal? Do you measure or keep track of those in any either way? No, no. I, I mean the. All right, like, we the, are. I know the data loving scientist part of me is like, yeah, I would love to be able to keep track of that. But yeah. the other part of me is like, at the end of the day, I could give a shit what the titratable acidity is if it doesn't taste good, mm-hmm. you know. So like that's something that, you know, it's just not. It's not one of my primary. Like the map is not the it's territory, a right? driven decision making yeah. process. Yeah. Like I'm not yeah. here for the numbers on the sheet of paper on the machine to tell me what my beer tastes like. Like, and most consumers have no frame of reference for what pH, like we used to put pH on the bottle at, at JK yeah. and it's like, we don't even necessarily know what this means. Like, yeah, we just know it sounds low. And at the time, like everybody was looking for the sour, most sour, sour beer, yes, right, you know, right. and we all regret that. <laughs> I would say I'm, 
I don't feel like very many beer makers out there would be like, no, we don't. We absolutely regret pushing it that far. Yes. So, I mean, the only part of that that I don't regret is that now when the pendulum swings back towards more flavorful beer, it will be with a little bit more balance in mind. I think the entire beer industry has done a lot of growing up over the last decade or decade and a half and uh, understanding how to make, you know, to balance acidity and sour beers. Well, and it's not just acidity. It's, as you mentioned earlier, getting away from the more is more approach that has constantly defined craft beer, whether that's more alcohol, Mm -hmm. whether that's more bitterness or whether that's more acidity. Candy. You or know, whatever. more sweetness, right? Yeah. More unfermented, uh, more lactose, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we are now in this age where we are starting to realize that these excesses, these indulgences of, of the past are, are not necessarily the route to make beautiful, totally. long-term, um, sustainable, like, classes of schools of beverage totally. you know, that, that people can engage with. I agree with that completely. And I think that, you know, the the current kind of, I'm not going to say obsession because I think it's healthy, uh, but the current appreciation for loggers across the industry right now sure. is that pendulum swing back from just like bludgeoning people with flavor for so long. And obviously those beers still exist out there. And, you know, that's great because occasionally I want something crazy like that. But on the whole, people are like, what kind of loggers do you have? And at some point the pendulum will swing back in potentially a slightly different direction And people will want things that have a little bit more interesting flavor or a little bit more intensity of flavor experience and loggers won't be satisfied. It's already swinging with New Zealand and West Coast pills and all of these things. Um, You know, and I think that's one thing that that it will always keep swinging no matter what. And we can't stop it. That's the nature. I'm here for it. Hang off. Don't hang on. We're not here to like, you know, hold it by the throat and try to control it. Let the thing be what it is. And, you know. Well, yeah, we don't live in a museum of craft beer, right? Exactly. This is, uh, it's yeah. constantly evolving and changing. And adapting and innovating. So I'd on, rather live in that world. For sure. On that note, let's take a big picture look uh, as we as we finish up here. As you think about the next chapter of Keeping Together and what that's going to look like, you know, again, it's probably not all mixed culture beer. If you open a tap room here in Santa Fe, you also need to engage with people that'll find you, uh, you know, in, in other random ways and find ways to, to create experiences that everyone, uh, or the, at least a good subset of the community finds compelling and interesting. What do you, what is keeping together look like three years from now, five years from now, uh, as you envision the beers that you make and the experience that you create for people when they come into your tap room and, uh, engage with these beers? Oh man, what a question. I like can barely see like 30 minutes out right now because I'm like deep in it with (laughs) design architects and engineers and real estate people. Three to five years from now, Saison is going to be the IPA of the beer world. So I'm not going to need to make other beers. But I love it. I love it. (laughs) But I'll be making other types of beers, not because I need to, but because I'm interested. Like, I don't know, man, I do so many different collaborations with people around the world. And it's always like, how can I apply these things that I consider to be very Saison specific philosophies to clean beers? Um, and I've never really been able to be like fully in the captain's seat when it comes to making them. So there is a part of me that does feel very curious about making 
more hop forward beers. And honestly, I probably won't be calling them by style names that anyone is familiar with at this point in time. I think that the average consumer could care less about the style, like the people that are just wandering in off the street, like I'm going to give them some flavor words um, and, you know, hope that my staff is patient and excited and like passionate enough about it to like really take them on a journey so that they can explore what the flavor means to them anyway. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to making different things and I don't know. I feel like craft beer has always been synonymous with innovation and, I feel like over the last couple of years, that like spirit of innovation has been, it's not been at the forefront of what any of us are really doing. You know, it used to be like flavor innovation and then it was process innovation and then it became marketing and business innovation because it had to. And, you know, again, with the pendulum, maybe we'll swing back to flavor innovation and now being so much farther ahead or further ahead than we were 10 years ago in process and ingredient development you know, maybe that flavor innovation could be a wholly new thing. So it's my hope, my optimistic hope. (laughs) In those five years, how do you hope that people, your customers think about and view keeping together as a brand? You know, how, how do you hope they feel and think about your brand? Oh man, this is a vulnerable question. Um, honestly, I hope that when people think of keeping together, they think about, uh, a product or a, a, an experience that feels comfortable and non-pretentious and safe and is a place where they can be vulnerable and access memories of their own that they may not know that they have and provide a safe space for them to share those memories with each other. Because I think that all of us have got really deep-seated flavor deep-seated sensory experiences and more often than not you just need something to unlock your memory and then you need a space to share with other people to communicate those so that you can relive them so that's what i hope people think about a place that can create the prompts yeah and also you know allow for and validate some of that yeah you know that experience totally that sounds like a beautiful brewery to me and one that I can't wait to visit. Not in five years, but much sooner than Hopefully that. Hopefully much sooner. <laughs> <laughs> and continue visiting over the years as I as I come back to Santa Fe and taste these beers other you know, other places. Um I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. G and D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with twenty four seven service and support. Carry Biofine Eco is a natural clarification aid that doesn't impact beer flavor. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew gives you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. ProBrew's rotary can fillers can take your packaging to the next level. RMS roller grinder mills unlock the full potential of your grain. Omega's stylized yeast bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Keep your brewery running smoothly with five-star chemicals and ABS Commercial is your full service brewery outfitter. If you've enjoyed this or if you say want to go and read some more Saison stories on beerandbring.com while you're there, click on that subscribe button. Help support our mission to bring great content to you. We are a small independent business uh, privately owned by all of our, uh, uh, our you know, there's four of us that own 
own 100% of our business, no outside investors, everyone works for the business. You know, we are not supported by uh, any outside entities. You know, we sell advertising, but we primarily depend on your subscriptions to be able to bring this content to you. So please go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Avery, if people want to learn more about keeping together, follow this journey as you open up this you know, brick and mortar brewery here in Santa Fe, or, or try to you know, learn more about the beers you've made through that the Chicago venue at Half Acre. Where where do they learn more about keeping together? I would definitely go to uh, keepingtogether.com to start, and you can also find us on Instagram at keeping together beer is the handle at keeping together beer yes cool well thank you for talking with me it's been fun i'm glad we could finally have this conversation Same. and what a beautiful place to do it right down here in santa fe thank you so much for New having Mexico. me this was awesome uh the pleasure is all mine cheers cheers This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.